We're in the Gospel of John this morning. I've been looking forward to this for some time. I'm going to go ahead and read to you again what we read earlier. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 14 verses of the first chapter. And you can follow along with me. I'll be reading. I'll read this morning from the New King James. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a light to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him or by him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this incredible book that you have gifted to us. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle John and his faithfulness in writing this. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, who is really the true author who inspired this. And we pray, the Lord, that you would uh, work your word into our hearts, that this word of yours might be grafted into our very souls. That because of what we read today, Lord, that it, would, that it would affect us, that it would change us, that it would shape us, that it would form us. That we would understand even greater and more fully the word who became flesh and dwelt among us who as the prophet Isaiah referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to study your word so that your spirit, Lord, might have his way in our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. I'm barely going to be able to get through the first verse this morning. Probably jump into the second verse a little bit uh, because this is incredibly full and there's, there's so much to glean from. And, and my understanding is, is that uh, what you have here in the, in the Gospel of John, the first 14 verses, it's called the prologue by, by Bible students and scholars and such. It's, it's kind of the introductory part of the gospel. And to be able to understand the gospel of John, you've got to thoroughly understand, I believe, the prologue. But to understand the prologue, you need to understand chapter 
uh, 1, verse 1, this first verse. And this incredible declaration that we have here of in the beginning was the word, which, by the way, is a paradox in the Greek grammar. I'll get into that in just a bit. But in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was, or I believe the old King James translates this, the same was in the beginning with God. Uh, It could be translated either or. It is a pronoun. Most modern translators decided to translate it with the pronoun he in English, but it really refers to the same, referring, I believe, to the word who was in the beginning with God. And, And to really understand these things and to nail these things down, because I, I, what you believe about who Jesus Christ is is extremely important. And, and it, it, we have this incredible declaration here of the deity of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and, and with God from the beginning. And, and so you have this phrase, in the beginning, uh, and it, it should hearken you back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It is believed, and I did a lot of reading on this, and boy, I tell you, I, I, really, I really did study this, um, and I don't feel prepared at all, to be honest with you, because I think this little verse, verse and a half, two verses, is that full. But I, I did do a lot of studying on this, and, and many of the church fathers said, yes, it's a, it, it rings of Genesis chapter 1, but it really refers to that which is prior to the creation. It really refers to what is called eternity past. And God who dwells outside of time. Now, this makes the most sense to me, although it's very hard for me to explain that God never had a beginning. He never had a beginning. He's eternal. Uh, And that's what eternal really means is without beginning and without ending. In, in the book of Psalms, chapter 90, verse 2, it tells us that before the mountains were brought forth, this is one of my favorite verses. And by the way, could you turn that light on for me, please? That would be great. Thank you. Um, be, back to Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Notice, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. In other words, prior to creation. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I I love this verse. It's this incredible declaration because the Hebrew word everlasting, really, it it can be described as beyond the vanishing point. I've I've explained this to you guys before, right? But I'm going to go ahead and explain it to you again. This particularly can be illustrated if you're out somewhere on the Great Plains, Right on the Great Plains, you can like see for miles and miles, and all you just see is flat. Right, and in other words, you can look as far as you can go. Now the mountains are in the way, but if if there, if this was just flat land, you could look as far as you could see, and eventually you get to a place in your eyesight that you can't see any further. That's called the vanishing point. And so that that's sort of what this refers to in the hebrew that god exists beyond the vanishing point in other words beyond what i can see beyond what i can intellectually comprehend and it's from everlasting to everlasting 
God exists beyond the vanishing point past. He exists beyond the vanishing point future. He is eternal. He is infinite. I love that infinity sign because it just keeps going and keeps, I'll stop. But anyway, it just keeps going and it just keeps going. No ending, no beginning. That is the beginning that many of the church fathers believed that John is referring to. And what I find very interesting about this particular verse is, is, and really, if you look at the whole Bible, God never sets out to prove his existence. God does not try to prove his existence. And I was understood, I believe, by Augustine when he said, I believe in order that I might understand. I have faith in order that I might understand. I got saved. I became a Christian when I was eight years old. Did I understand the Trinity? Not really. Did I understand the second coming? Not a clue. Did I understand Arminianism or Calvinism? Had no idea. Did I understand different thoughts of end times? Not a clue. Matter of fact, I didn't, wasn't exposed to different end time views until I got into college. Um, but I understood that Jesus loved me. And this I knew because the Bible told me so. And I understood that and I acted on faith and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Lord and to be my Savior. And because I believed He's given me some, some understanding. I'm still working on a lot of the stuff, right? I believe in order that I might understand. And the problem with today's modern thinking is we want to understand in order that we might believe. Now, that might work well in medical science, but it doesn't work well in understanding the truths of God and how he has declared it. In the beginning, beyond the vanishing point, and it's believed that that John inspired to say in the beginning because he has to break this down and give us a frame of reference by which we can understand. Does that make sense? So what better than telling us in the beginning? In the beginning, this really, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the Greek word arche, spelled A-R-C-H-E if you want to write it down. It literally means the source. The source, the cause. You see, John is writing to a mixed Jewish and Greek audience, but much of the Jewish audience was already influenced by Greek philosophies called Hellenism. A guy named Aristotle who talked about causation and finally came up with this idea of the prime mover, the one Thing, the one entity that causes all other causes and every other reaction. Every co- uh, reaction has an equal and opposite reaction, right? 
And for anything to occur, it has to have a cause. It's like some of you are able to see your Bibles a little bit better because the cause, we turn that light on, right? And what John is in essence saying is that in the beginning, that, and he says in the beginning was the Word, so the Word was the cause, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. Now, again, this is contradictory in the uh, Greek grammar. I want to get into that in a second. But he's talking about this idea of this is the source. This is the source of everything that exists. This is the, the source of our existence. This is the source of our next breath. This is the source of our next meal. This is hopefully the source of my next word, right? And, and, and it's saying that we cannot go back any further than God as far as assigning the causes for all of what occurs in the world. He's the primary source, or as Aristotle called him, the prime mover. See, those philosophers were understood a whole lot more about God than sometimes we want to give them credit for. It was the silly Greek mythology that they did not believe in, by the way. They knew that stuff was a bunch of rubbish. But it speaks of his eternal being. That he is the light before the world came into being. He is the intellectual and the essential wisdom that exists before anything else existed. Zubius said that. The intellectual and essential wisdom existing before the ages. So we mark this off, that that place beyond the vanishing point, that place that quite frankly, I'm already starting to blow a few fuses here, but quite frankly, as I think about, it eludes my ability to understand, so therefore I believe in order that I might be able to understand a little bit more. I can't wait to get to heaven because you know what the first thing I'm going to do besides worship Jesus for about a thousand years or more? I'm going to enroll in that seminary. And I hope you guys, <clears throat> I hope you guys are going to be in class with me. I'm going, to be on, I'm going to be one of those nerds on the front row, right? Which is kind of hard to do when you go to class online. You don't have a front row anymore. But anyway, which is kind of fun. Cyril of Alexandria said that God or John is not dealing strictly with time here. He's not dealing strictly with an ordered sequence except for the fact that the beginning was what was occurring or what occurred before everything else. Now, this idea of God dwelling outside of time, and I'll throw this out here for you, and, and, and I still think about this, and I still think there has to be something better to explain it, but I haven't come up with anything. This idea with God dwelling outside of time is that all of Reality occurs before God in one moment. That's how, with God, there isn't a past, there isn't a present, there isn't a future, it's one big now. Now, how in the world that works, I'm not sure. And and I've never 
talk about I believe so that I might be able to understand. I kind of trust in that, but I think there's something better, to be honest with you. I just don't think that God has given it to us because there are some times that we have to confess there are things that are above our pay grade. And if we understood everything there was to understand about God, would we truly, would we truly worship him? Or would we try to rival him? So that distance, that, that distance that we even see here in the first verse, that distance I think is somewhat necessary. It says, it says in the beginning was the word. Was the word. That sounds like past tense. Sounds like past tense. It's not past tense. But let me get into that in a second. It is the Greek word emi, which is a verb. Verb is what? An action word. It is basically the verb to be. That which exists, right? It's the verb to be. And when it's translated was, whenever we use something, when we say I was home before I came to church, that's talking in the past tense, isn't it? But what's interesting about this word in this sentence, it's not, now the Greek does not have past tense. I know where some of you are going. If you remember, you're thinking, is it aorist tense? Which gives you a snapshot. It talks about one single event. It's not in the aorist tense, which I found fascinating. It's in the imperfect tense. Follow this. This is important. Because it, it is the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense portrays an action. I'm just going to read it to you right out of the dictionary. It portrays an action in process or in a state of being that is occurring. In process or a state of being that is occurring in the past. Is that a, does that make sense? Is something occurring in the past? Think about what I just said. Is something occurring in the past? It occurred. Past tense. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire John to use an imperfect tense of the verb to be, which the word was is not the best translation, but it's the best we got. Because it is something that happened in the past that is occurring with no assessment, no statement on the completion of that action. It happens in the past, but it's perpetual. It's continuing to move. It, you follow what I'm, it's infinity. He's describing infinity in this one Greek imperfect tense verb. Some of you get it, some of you are still thinking it through. That's fine. So am I. Okay. In the beginning, something's occurring. RK, the source, something's occurring. It's not completed. It's still in the process of. And there's no assessment of its completion. So uh, hopefully you've blown a few fuses because I keep popping them here and I'm having to reset them so I can continue to speak on this. 
but it's a paradox. This, the, in, in the Greek language, the, this use of the word was, imperfect tense, and referring to the beginning, that's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. But what it's doing, and, and Chrysostom, uh, John Chrysostom talked about this, it, it, it's noting the, the, the idea of eternity and infinity. See, the early fathers, they were smart. They really were smart guys, and they were well-educated. And, and now I haven't read every one, but from what I've read, without exception, they all believe that this verse is declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ. There was one guy who did not believe that this was declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ. His name was Arius. He's not considered a church father. He's considered a heretic. He believed that that Jesus was a created divine being. And just in the beginning, the source was something that occurred at the beginning, something that occurred back then, but it is still continuing. What it's saying is that that was the word. So the word was before time started, and it occurs continuously. Does that make more sense? Some of you, the light bulb's starting to come on with some of you. So to me, your mileage may vary. To me, just that first little phrase says, this is, this is describing the infinite almighty God. In the beginning was the word. And then it goes on. And the word was with God. By the way, that was is the same. In, 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 these, in these two verses, you have was one, one, two, three, four times. Every time that this word was is used in verse 1 and in verse 2 of John 1, guess what? It's imperfect. It's referring to this concept as something that is occurring in the past, not completed. So it, 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 it just, to me, it just blows up the time-space continuum. And I think that's what John was intending to do by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that he was with God. I'm getting ahead of myself. In the beginning was the word. I'm not quite done with the phrase. You all probably know this. The word is one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word logos. Okay. Logos is an incredibly interesting and a very full word in the Greek as well. It, 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 can, it can mean to gather or put words together. It can refer to speech and that which speech implies. The logos can also refer to the reasoning of man. Gosh, I remember. First class, second seminary I went to and... and I'm taking a final. 
right? And he says, what is the logos of, right? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, okay. You know, he's talking about the argument of, the reasoning of, the message. And even this word can refer to the intentions behind the words. I'm trying to think, well, I'm not going to go there. Well, let me explain this. I'm trying to think of a, of a sarcastic phrase I could use to explain the intention behind a word. When, 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 well, there's a, kind of a southern saying, right, is bless your heart. Some of you didn't understand. Now, I never understood what that meant. And I thought that was like saying something really nice. Bless your heart isn't saying something really nice. Bless your heart is really saying, you're just an ignorant little person now, aren't you? And, and, and I, I learned that the hard way, as you can imagine. But, but um, the intention and the thought behind saying bless your heart, because if I say to you, bless your heart, what does it sound like? I want to bless your heart. I want to bless your soul. But that's, that's a euphemism and for saying, boy, you're just kind of a simpleton, aren't you? You know? And uh, yeah, it, I won't... I won't bother with going in the story when someone said that to me. But anyway, that's the thought and the intention. That was the logos behind that phrase. And, and so, so far, Paul, uh, John, Paul, I did Romans last week. Okay, John is really, he, he, he's presupposing that, th- that there is in the world a primary logos, a primary reasoning, an intelligible, recognizable law. We call it today intelligent design. Or I should say we don't call it. They call it intelligent design. I get my design from Genesis chapter 1. But this intelligent, recognizable law which make things possible and knowledge and understanding in human reason. There, 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 are, there are physical laws in the world that take place. Now, one of them is gravity. Right? If you go up to a very tall building and you leap out over the balcony of that very tall building, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall. That's part of what is the characteristic of what has been built in, that intelligible, recognizable law. And if we have an intelligible, recognizable law, we have to have an intelligible, recognizable lawgiver. Amen? We don't come up with these things by ourselves, guys. We like to think that we do. But in that time, before time began, occurring in something in the past that is still happening today, the reasoning, the logos, the word, the very expression of God himself was in existence. And the word, the Logos, was with God. He was with God. Literally what that means in the Greek is he was toward God. Like here, I'm 
facing toward you, you're facing toward me, except for some of you are already asleep. Anyway, no, I'm kidding. But, um, by the way, one of them's water, okay? All right, I'm not, I'm not, just to let you know. What we have here is this focus. The word was, again, past tense, still occurring, but he's with God or toward God. What we have here is this focus on this relationship of the word to God. Does that imply a distinction? Does that imply a distinction? You better bet it does imply a distinction. So in the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God. I think it's a safe translation for God here, or a safe interpretation, I should say. It's referring here to God the Father. Although I believe it means much more than just God the Father. But here we have the word now is with God. And so there is this distinction. There, 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 there's this, this um, he's really describing two parties, right? Today when we leave, my wife Mary will go home with me, I hope. She will go home with me. Now, does that mean we are just completely just one, or are we two traveling together in the car? We are two traveling together. Now, we are one because we're married, but essentially we are also two human beings traveling together, right? We are with each other. You, some of you are sitting with your spouses. There's two of you there, isn't there? Right, Brian? Okay, just checking. All right. It's emphasizing a distinction. But it is not emphasizing any form of subjectionism of the word to God. It's not saying that the word is less than God. It's simply saying that the word was with God. It is a distinction. And then John comes along and he flips the apple cart upside down. And then he says the word was God. Occurring in the past, continuing to occur, still going on, no assessment of his completion, no assessment of any, any action that is now finished. He did not resign. The logos, the reason, the words, the intent behind the words, the word who, skip down to verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I can't wait till we get to that verse where I can really unpack it for you. I'm just going to refer to it briefly now. I combine verse 1 and I combine verse 14 and that tells me this is talking about none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who 
was God. Is. Remember, it's the verb to be. Is. It's declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ. Well, didn't it just say that he was with God? And then it says, well, which one's true? Is it a paradox? Of course it's a paradox. Is this God-inspired word? Therefore, is it not true? So we have this incredible declaration in this first verse. The word, Jesus Christ, was in the beginning. He was with God and he was God. Or I'll even change the tenses of the verbs. Jesus Christ, who is in the beginning, who is with God and is God. That's what this is telling us. He's opening up this understanding already of the Trinity. Um, was God. The word was, was originally before the creation with God. One in essence, one in nature. This is really important stuff. You should not writing, you should be. One in essence, one in nature, yet personally distinct. The revealer and the interpreter of the hidden being of God. Verse 18 of chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. By the way, only begotten does not mean that God gave birth to Jesus. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll We'll get there. Can you just trust me on that one? It's really declaring his resurrection, and I will show that to you out of the book of Psalms. The revealer and the interpreter of the hidden being of God, one in essence, one in nature, yet personally distinct. Now, does that make any sense? It does to God. Makes perfect sense to God. I'm having a hard time just hanging on to this. But I believe, because it's right here in black and white in front of us, and even uncovering the Greek grammar, it, it, it even... It even expands it, I believe, even more. But I believe so that I might understand. Now, I've only been studying this for since I was in preschool. Well, since I was 8, 9, 10, but started church in preschool. I'm only 40. So, um, and don't I wish. The word was with God 
and the word was God. It is a distinction and a union at the same time. Only God could pull this off, guys. We have a foundational confession here written for us in John 1 through 14. But I'll just touch on, I'm almost done. Three things that I want to bring out here and then we'll close. I'm just going to throw them out there for you. The Logos, Jesus Christ, has an origin. Well, actually, he doesn't have an origin. But he supersedes the created order of time and space. Jesus Christ supersedes the created order of time and space. Second of all, and this is very important too, particularly when you look at the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the Logos, Jesus Christ, has an identity that is distinct. He has an identity that is distinct from the previous understood designations of God. I will say that again slowly for you if you need to. Okay, Um, the Logos has an identity distinct from, distinct from, the previous understood designations for God. You have a fuller revelation in the New Testament than what you have in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay, so here it is right off the bat, man. You've got this incredible new understanding and distinction of who God is. Thirdly, the Logos must be understood. The Logos must be understood as part of the unity of God. The Logos must be understood as part of the unity of God. So, wrap it up. If God is this incredible, and he is, and I, don't, I, don't, I feel like I've just touched the hem of the garment this morning. If he is this incredible, if he is this, what's known as the holy other, if he is so beyond who we are, and he is, What is he messing with us for? God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world. We'll look at that later in John 3. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He created us for fellowship with him. He created us to have communion, a relationship with him. He loves us that much. I don't understand. I don't understand how, you know, I look at me and I think, I don't understand how God loves me. And I look at some of you and I think, I really don't understand how God loves some of you. But, but anyway, but, but he loves us. This incredible God that I feel like this morning I had a hard time explaining. 
loves us beyond whatsoever Ephesians tells us, whatsoever we could ask or think. Beyond all that. And he's called us into a relationship with him. That's the thing to really, I think, to get out of this. This is, this is such an important uh, um, logos, argument, reasoning, apologetic for who God is. Because I, I, you, can, you can disagree with me on a lot of things, but don't mess with me on the deity of Christ. But this incredible being loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. Each and every day. Because in the beginning was the word. I didn't even get the verse two. But anyway, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Amen.